title of today's message is called A Mother Knows. And uh, we're going to be reading in Deuteronomy 34, and you can read along with me in your notes. We're going to read 34, 1 through 9. All together. Then Moses went up to Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab and climbed Pisgah Peak, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead as far as Dan, all the land of Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah extending to the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev, the Jordan Valley with Jericho, the city of Palms as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to Moses, this is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have now allowed you to see it with your own eyes, but you will not enter the land. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, just as the Lord had said. The Lord buried him in a valley near Beth Peor in Moab, but to this day no one knows the exact place. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyesight was clear and he was as strong as ever. People of Israel mourned for Moses on the plains of Moab for 30 days until the customary period of mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him, doing just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Turn around and tell two people, a mother knows. <laughs> Go ahead and have a seat. I was going through some interesting statistics. Mm. And this is what I found out. Did you know that it was not until the year 1850 that our world reached one billion people? By 1930, which was 80 years later, we reached two billion people. It only took 30 more years for the world's population to reach 3 billion people. And now here we are 11 years into the 21st century, and we have now reached over 7 billion people. That's how fast times have changed. Asia has over 4 billion people. Africa has over 1 billion, and the rest of the world makes up the three. Until 1800, the top speed was 20 miles an hour because people were traveling on horseback. When the railroad train came, almost overnight, it jumped to 100 miles an hour. In 1952, the first passenger jet could travel 500 miles an hour. By 1979, the Concorde plane cruised at more than 1,200 miles an hour. But even back in 1961, the astronauts were orbiting the Earth at 16,000 miles an hour. I said all of that to say this. There's been a lot of changes that have taken place. If you are over the age of 50, you've seen a lot. If you're over the age of 60, you've actually seen TV evolve from a little box where, where the channel changer was your kid 
And if you were in the neighborhood, the channel changer was a vice grip to the remote. Most of us don't like change. My husband hated it when I changed the furniture. I mean, he just, he would come in and he would like, what did you do? Why did you change everything? It would really kind of drive him crazy. And as, com as uncomfortable as change may be, change is a fact of life. To live is to change. Change is inevitable in everything that is living. People and organizations who refuse to change and adjust to this, changing worlds soon become extinct. Because just think about the dinosaurs. We know that they were alive. We, we have all of the skeletal remains of a dinosaur, but what happened to the dinosaurs? What destroyed them? Nothing. Nothing destroyed the dinosaurs. What happened is that the climate around the world changed, but the dinosaurs didn't. That's what killed them. But not all change is good. As we get older, our minds tell us we are a certain age. So we get out there and we play football and we play basketball or we do exercise. We do some kind of sport, some type of physical exercise. And then the next day, our body reminds us, you've changed. Because <laughs> when you try to get up, you're like, Ooh, you can't even lift up your arm without ooing and eyeing. But change is not necessarily a bad thing. The scripture that we read this morning has to do with change, a change in leadership. In our scripture, the Israelites were experiencing an overwhelming change of leadership. Moses had been their leader for 40 years. And now, now, just as the Israelites were preparing to enter the land that God had promised them, now Moses is dying. Just before he dies, Moses was able to see the promised land, but he was not allowed to enter it. The change for the Israelites couldn't have been more dramatic. It was a change from Moses to Joshua. Joshua had been commissioned by God to succeed Moses. And that must have been a little traumatic, probably a lot traumatic, similar to the transition that is going to be taking place this upcoming week. Eight years ago, our church went through the most difficult and life-changing event that any church can experience. My husband went home to be with the Lord, and I was given the privilege and the opportunity to lead this church as a senior pastor. And since I was the first woman in this ministry to assume this type of leadership position, so many went to their theology books looking for scriptural arguments against this appointment. But I have always believed, since I first knew the Lord 39 years ago, I've always believed that the gifts and the call of God are not gender specific. God called Deborah to lead. God called Esther to lead. 
And he called Priscilla to lead. He called so many others, and I knew, and I still know that he has called me to lead. But I'm sure that the Israelite thought, man, you know what? We're doomed. <laughs> Moses is gone. Like so many thought, we're doomed. Pastor Steve is gone. What are we going to do? The Israelites felt that they needed Moses to lead them. But I want to let you know something today. That God cannot and will not be limited to using only one person. If you don't think so, read the book of Joshua. In some ways, Joshua was even a greater leader than Moses. Because he led the Israelites into many victorious battles, and they were outnumbered, tremendously outnumbered. The scriptures clearly and consistently teach us that God will use and can use anyone to accomplish his purposes. All they have to do is be open and willing to be used by God. And the same can be said about a change in leadership including a change of pastors. You see, our legacy here is not about successes. It is about our successors. Legacy is just not the gift of handing something down. It is to whom we are handing it down that makes the biggest difference. This church is my husband's legacy. It was passed from him to me and now I prepare to pass it on to my son. This church is his spiritual inheritance. Just like the Israelites had to learn new ways, I want to share with you three ways that it's going to help to smooth this transition and allow your new pastors, Esteban and Chela, to be strong and effective in this church. Number one, and I put it in your notes, let the pastors be the pastors. In verse 9, it says, So the Israelites listened to Joshua and did what the Lord commanded Moses. Now the Israelites did not expect Joshua to be exactly like Moses. Joshua had a totally different leadership style than Moses. Joshua was a warrior. Joshua was into battle. Joshua was different. But God was able to use and work with Joshua just as effectively as he did with Moses, even though they were so different. When I assumed this position eight years ago, many people wanted me to fill my husband's shoes. I couldn't, and I never did. I followed a great man, but that great man did not wear high heels. You have learned throughout these years to adapt to my high heels. But now as we transition, I need to remind you, my son does not wear high heels. I was hoping I'd hear that. <laughs> In trying to come behind my husband's pastoral leadership, the first few years 
were often filled with times of grief. And I am so grateful for the men and women who stood by me and behind me during those times. I was learning and adjusting to my role from being a pastor's wife to a pastor, from being a married woman to a widow, to having a full house to having an empty nest. Everything hit all at once. So I take you back to remember the story of David and Goliath. When David first came to Saul and told him that he was going to fight Goliath, Saul tried to put his armor on David. Saul was a, an adult man trying to fit his armor on a teenager. He tried to put a coat of armor. He tried to put a bronze helmet but the armor did not fit. And the scripture says there in 1 Samuel 17, 39, that David told Saul, I can't go in these because I'm not used to them. So David took off the armor and picked out five smooth stones from the stream, put out his little sling, and well, you know, the rest is history. The point is, David had to fight Goliath his own way. He couldn't do it Saul's way. The same is true for your new pastors, Esteban and Chela. You need to let the pastors be the pastors. Don't expect him to be me or to be something that he is not. They are going to fight spiritual battles their own way. They have unique skills and talents. And they're going to lead differently than I ever did because now you have a man and a woman. And for the last over eight years, you've only had one. He's going to preach differently than I do. And he's already done that. He can, he can do what I can't do. See, I can't jump off of here. <laughs> I got heels on. Don't force them to be something that they're not. Joshua could not be Moses. David could not be Saul. Elisha could not be Elijah. God uses each of us in unique ways because our skills, our call is unique. We're not the same. Each of us has unique strengths. And Esteban and Chela are so gifted, and I want to ask you to allow them to use their gifts to build this church for God's glory. Secondly, not only do I want you to let the pastors be the pastors, but I want you to assist your pastors in ministry. While they have unique skills for ministry, don't expect them to do everything. They can't do it alone. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, once gave him a great piece of advice. Because Jethro noticed that Moses was acting as a judge for all the problems of the Israelites. And they would come to him. I mean, they would just make a line, and they would just give him problem after problem after problem. And Jethro told Moses in Exodus 18, what you're doing isn't good. You're going to wear yourself out and the people out. The work is too heavy for you. You can't handle it alone. 
Jethro told Moses to find God-fearing leaders who were capable and honest and help them judge the minor problems. And so he told Moses, you handle the most difficult ones and let the other ones handle the minor ones. Because he said, that will make your load lighter because they'll share it with you. And you'll be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. In the same way, Esteban and Chela can't carry out the ministries of this church alone. They need your help. And if you make suggestions, because I know some of you have so many suggestions, then be prepared to help them carry it out. If you make a suggestion, be ready to get your hands dirty. Don't make a suggestion and then say, oh, well, psh, it's your problem. Remember, pastors are like coaches. No team expects their coach to get out on the field or get out on the court and play. Esteban and Chela can train and equip you, but you have to get out on the playing field. You have to actually get out and do the work. They have great ideas. They have leadership skills, but they can't effectively lead if you won't listen to them and carry out the ministry. You're the players. You live in the real world. And you have to get out on the court and play. No team or church can be successful if it doesn't follow the leadership and the directions of its leader. And third and last, but by no means least, pray and serve your pastors. I was reading and studying the relationship between Elijah and Elisha. And Elisha had the reputation as a man who poured water on Elijah's hands. He was a servant, he was a helper, he was a student, and he was a minister to Elijah. See, God was getting ready to do a new thing. He was getting ready to release a double portion upon Elisha. But Elijah had to go. In order for that double anointing to be fallen on Elisha, in order to bring in the new, he had to take out the old. And this is not unusual and it's not strange because this has actually been God's process since the beginning of time. Moses was removed so Joshua could take over. Elijah was removed so, so Elisha could take over. John the Baptist was removed so that Jesus could take over. And Jesus was removed so that the Holy Spirit could take over. See, sometimes there are those who like Elisha. They, they love the old. They understand the old. They learn from the old. But in order to receive the new, we got to let go the old. See, when chariots and horses of fire swept down from heaven and separated them, Elisha knew that he had to let Elijah go. God was taking something away, but he was replacing it with something better. Now, I know that God is going to reach into our lives and he is going to begin to do something new in all of us. Some of our traditions, some of our methods, some of our programs, 
are Elijah. They got to be let go. You got to let them go. You cannot hold on to the leg and say, I can't let you go. You got to let go. Elisha wasn't anti-Elijah. He loved him. He had learned from him. But there was a fresh anointing that God wanted to pour out, and he needed a new wineskin or a new skin in order to receive it. Luke 5, 37 in your notes says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. For the new wine would burst the wineskins, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wineskins. But no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. The old is just fine, they say. See, new wine is alive. New wine moves differently. New wine expands. And it's got to be placed in bottles that have the capacity to expand and move. And if we're going to be partakers of this fresh move of God, we have to be adaptable, expandable, flexible, and teachable. We have grown up with Elijah. But if we will let God rub us down with oil, the oil of the Holy Ghost, then we can become vessels and channels for the new anointing to flow through. Much of what we have become used to in this church have been methods for a time and for a season. And unfortunately, just like the children of Israel, we fall in love with methods. We fall in love with things. We fall in love with comfort. We fall in love with the tools that God has given us. But God uses tools, and when he's done with them, we need to be willing to let go and pick up a new tool. We don't use the tools of the 1800s. We don't use the tools of the 1900s. We don't even use the tools of the early 2000s. They've all changed. They're all different. We got to give them up and we got to move on. Otherwise, we're going to start worshiping and losing the presence and the anointing of God because we want to do what we want to do the way we want to do it. This is where we miss it, is when God finishes the tool. He's chosen other tools, but we don't want to let go of the old. We don't want to receive the new. We try to force the new into the old because we don't want to change. And that's why there's a whole lot of people that are not serving God today. They're leaving churches by the droves because Methods are changing. Tools are changing. And we here need to understand and agree that we need a fresh and new anointing. And it can't be put into an old bottle. This fresh and new anointing won't fit in the old bottle. The old bottles are too brittle, too stubborn, too stiff. And some bottles are even worn out. I believe that the Spirit of God is transitioning the anointing. And those who have the spiritual insight to see will make the transition with this new anointing. So how do we know what God has done with and what he's doing now? The way that it's always been. 
where is the anointing moving? If the anointing is in it, if God is in it, it's going to flourish. And if the anointing isn't in it anymore, then let Elijah go. June 23rd, during our World Conference 2011, marked 30 years that Victory Outreach Haywood was established. The age of 30 is representative of the age of maturity. Jesus was 30 years old when he began his public ministry. And as a young man growing up, Jesus, the Bible says, grew in favor with God and man. He was subject to his mother and Joseph as long as he was underage. He was still the son of God, but he was under the guidance of his earthly parents, and he was directly responsible to them all the way up to 30 years old. But he had a unique relationship with his mother. His mother recognized and was aware of God's timing. Because one day, the Bible tells us that they went to a wedding feast in Cana. And when they ran out of wine, Mary, Jesus' mother, ran to tell him, we're out of wine. And he looked at her and said, what is that to me? Like, what are you telling me for? He said, my time has not yet come. But his mother knew that it was his time of introduction to the world. So she didn't even deal with him anymore. She went to the servants. And she told the servants, whatever he says to do, do it. It was no longer what she said. It was the beginning of his public ministry. And so this is my charge to the church today. And it's there in your notes. I ask that you would begin to know your pastor's heart. Know and understand that if it doesn't look like it's right, your responsibility is to know their heart and pray. Secondly, be loyal to them. No matter what. Third, be trustworthy. You can be trusted with whatever is given to you. Number four, don't make judgment calls. It's so easy to judge somebody. It's so easy to look at someone and say, they don't know what they're doing. Wait. Number five, develop a servant's heart. Be willing to do whatever God asks you to do. Number five, be a finisher. If you pick up something, finish it. Don't let hurt, don't let the fact that you feel rejected make you feel like you need to drop the ball. And number seven, have a heart for God. As long as God is first, you're going to be okay. When my son was in eighth grade, I don't know if you remember this, 
I'm sure you do. I was asked to speak at his eighth grade graduation. And I don't think he remembers because how embarrassing is it to have your mother speak at your eighth grade graduation? You're like, out of all the people, my mother. But as I was going over this message, I went back to this poem that I read at his graduation. And I think now it'll mean something different than it did when he was 14 years old. And it reads like this. Build me a son, O Lord, who will be strong enough to know when he is weak and brave enough to face himself when he is afraid. One who will be proud and unbending in honest defeat and humble and gentle in victory. Build me a son whose wishbone will not be where his backbone should be. A son who will know thee. Lead him, I pray, not in the path of ease and comfort, but under the stress and spur of difficulties and challenge. Here let him learn to stand up in the storm. Here let him learn compassion for those who fail. Build me a son whose heart will be clean, whose goal will be high, a son who will master himself before he seeks to master other men, one who will learn to laugh, yet never forget how to weep, one who will reach into the future, yet never forget the past. And after all these things are his, add, I pray, enough of a sense of humor so that he may always be serious, yet never take himself too seriously. Give him humility so that he may always remember the simplicity of greatness, the open mind of true wisdom, the meekness of true strength. Then we, his father and mother, will dare to whisper, we have not lived in vain. <laughs> Jesus' mother at the wedding feast in Cana told the servants to follow her son's instructions. He didn't feel that he was ready. He told her, my time's not yet up. But a mother knows. And today, I asked Victor Edward Hayward to do what your pastors ask of you in the same way that you have come under my leadership, in the same way that you have allowed me to shepherd you. I ask you to do the same for your pastors. It's his time. It's their time. A mother knows. Stand with me. And I'd like um, Ms. Seven Achella just to come right here in the middle. And I want to have all the ministry overseers come. And we're just going to lay hands. And I know that next week is the official installation. So this is the unofficial installation. Because a mother knows. And I want you to stretch your hands out this way. 
And I want you to just pray together with me that God would lead them, guide them, protect them, and give them wisdom beyond their years. Lord, as we bring Esteban and Chala before you, I pray that you would be with them from today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, and the next 50 years, Lord, as they carry the legacy that has been given to them. Lord, all these years, this was always his spiritual inheritance. I thank you for giving me the strength to hold on these last eight years so that I could give this to him. I know this is what my husband always wanted. And I pray that you would allow them to, to be strong in the storm and to hold on to each other during times of difficulty. That you would allow prosperity to enter their life and their marriage. That they would learn how to really love and back each other up. That you would give them the wisdom to raise their children in the ways of the Lord. That you would give them wisdom as you take them on this new journey in their life. Be with them every step of the way, just like you were with my husband and me for those 22 years. I pray that you would give them the same grace and mercy that you gave to us. Allow them to be the pastors that you want them to be, to grow, in wisdom, in stature. And I thank you, Lord, for giving me this opportunity to pass this spiritual inheritance, to pass this legacy over to my son. Bless their lives in every way, financially, spiritually, relationally, emotionally, and we just give you all the praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name. We all say? Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. So, this is your altar call. Your altar call is to do what you've been called to do. And that is to back them up to hold up their arms. It's not an altar call for you to come to the altar. It's an altar call for you to live. It's an altar call for you to function in. And so I pray that even though next week will be official, this is the unofficial because a mother knows. Amen? Give the Lord a hand.